Janai. Sate's taken, Janai. to another edition of the Narrative First Podcast, the weekly podcast where story is always king. I am your host, Jim Hull, the voice of Narrative First, and this is episode number 38, Discovering Dramatica and the Genesis of Narrative First, Part 2. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you didn't miss us too much over the last two weeks. Uh, we moved the Narrative First offices to a new location, and we're finally settled in and ready to pick up all the story structure and story analysis goodness and pick up where we left off. Before we get into part two of the introduction to Dramatica, I wanted to take a little time out to talk about the month of May. This month marks the one-year anniversary of Narrative First, of taking Narrative First full-time. Obviously, if you've listened to the last episode of the podcast, you know that started writing back in 2005-2006 and began writing articles for the Story Fanatic site, which eventually became Narrative First. But that was always on the side, always my side hustle while I was animating. But it was always something that I was extremely passionate about and really driven to do. And then it wasn't until uh, last year, May of 2016, that I finally decided to take the business full time and to just invest all my effort into uh, creating content and material and services and workshops and all kinds of stuff to make it easier for writers, producers, and directors to apply Dramatica to their own stories. And the first year has been amazing. I can't believe everything that's happened over the last year. Uh, Tons and tons of new writers. I've had a chance to work with some really amazingly talented, both professional and I guess you'd call amateur writers, uh, in developing their stories. Uh, The podcast uh, has grown immensely. I think it's four times as big as it was last year at this time. Did the story forming series, which I've only done two of them, and I really want to do more. I just have to find the time and the, the actual material to, to be able to work on it. Uh, the Throughline Thursdays, that's a feature that I really enjoy. Just finished another one recently. This week's story is the 2011 adaptation of Jane Eyre, uh, directed by Kerry Fukunaga. There's lots of different ways you can say that name. I'm pretty sure that's the right one. Uh, he was the writer-director behind the first season of True Detective and Beasts of No Nation, which are both tremendous, and uh, Sin Hombre, which I always wanted to see but haven't quite had a chance to see that yet. Uh, but this is his version of Jane Eyre, which pretty much follows the the novel, the original Charlotte Bronte novel. Uh, and it's just a, an interesting one. I'm going back through all the old analysis uh, from the site over the last uh, 10 10 years? 10, 15 years? No, I guess it would be 12 years. Uh, And making sure that those where I had actually figured out the story form for the story, I wanted to make sure that it had, um, you know, the appropriate story form, a downloadable Dramatica story expert file, and uh, cleaned up any, you know, misnomers and and made it so it was easily referenced. And part of that is also creating three-line Thursdays for those different stories. And Jane Eyre was always one that stood out for me because a lot of what obviously shows up because of my own tastes uh, are action-adventure, sci-fi thrillers, sci-fi drama, but I don't tend to put a lot of romance up. I mean, the first Through Line Thursdays was Moulin Rouge, which is a great romance, but it's also a comedy, Uh, but nothing like a straight romance like Jane Eyre. So I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at that because it shares the same structural setup as many romances. 
uh, you know, with the subject matter or, you know, the story itself about or the relationship, it can be difficult to differentiate between those two through lines uh, when the relationship story is the center of focus of the overall story through line and it's also the center of focus of the relationship story through line. Uh, when you're looking at the same thing, it can be difficult to figure out, you know, which part is an overall story through line part and which part is a relationship story through line part. And the key to that, to figuring it out, is to not think of them as through lines or storylines but to think of them as perspectives. So yes, you're looking at the same thing, the relationship, but one, you're looking at it from an objective standpoint, like what, what do they think about the relationship? What are they concerned with? And then from the other side, you're looking at it, you know, we. What do we feel about this relationship? What are our concerns going into it? Just you and me, or you and I, those concerns. That differentiates the relationship story through line from the overall story through line, and it makes it easier for, you know, not only the analyst, but, it, you know, if you're writing your own romance, to be able to figure out what elements apply to just the couple and which elements apply to everyone's concern about the couple. So thinking of them as perspectives, that's the most important thing. And it's interesting because this week, too, I'll be posting uh, in the blog a post about main character and thinking of the main character not as an actual character, but as a perspective. And that's something that uh, Chris says a lot at the user group meetings and just something that's stuck with me recently is those four through lines, if you stop thinking of them as through lines or storylines and start thinking of them as perspectives, it becomes easier for you to figure out where the source of conflict is coming from because you're not thinking of the character itself or the character himself or herself, but you're thinking of the kind of conflict that they're experiencing, what they're going through. Um, from that point of view. Stop thinking of the main character as the main character and the influence character as the influence character and instead see their two perspectives, their two competing points of view. It's easier for you to pull those out from the narrative itself. You know, when you look at a final completed product or you know, story, all those four through lines, all those four perspectives are all woven together and you just get one, you know, complete unit. Um, but when it comes to analyzing it or creating your own, if you want to find out, you know, where the problems are, where the holes are in the story, you want to be able to pull them apart. And in, in something like a romance, where the romance is the, the centerpiece of a lot of the different through lines, you want to make sure that you look at those through lines as perspectives, not as individual characters. Uh, I received uh, an email this week, somebody who took umbrage with my analysis of Arrival, uh, which I will have a link to in the show notes, uh, which also happens to be the user group analysis film for next week, for May. Um, if you are new to Dramatica, uh, every month, the second Tuesday of every month for the last 20-some-odd years, uh, we get together, uh, watch a film, and then go through and determine you know, the story form for that film. Uh, and I've already done the one for Arrival because I was so inspired by it, and I just felt so strongly about the story form. And I had put uh, Luis, the main character of the film, uh, in a fixed attitude as if she was a beer. And the email took umbrage with the fact that, well, it seems like, you know, she she does a lot of stuff. And it's true, she, she does a lot of stuff. She takes a lot of external action. Uh, if you're new to Dramatica, the main character will have a preference for either um, doing or being. Like, they'll have a preference for either taking external action or a preference for taking internal action, you know, in order to solve their own personal problems. And it can be difficult sometimes, especially when the main character is also the protagonist to see the difference between the two. And so uh, what this person had done is they had listed a whole bunch of different things that uh, Luis does in the film 
you know, to, in an effort to prove, well, this makes her a doer. So if you're thinking of her as a character, well, yeah, she, the main character does a lot of things, so maybe that is what it should be. But if instead you look at it as a perspective, like, okay, what's the I perspective? What am I experiencing personally? It's not so much the stuff that she does that's causing problems. It's the internalization of the loss of her daughter. And that's the, the unique thing that's unique to her, unique to, you know, nobody else experiences that we get to have insight into and pulls us into the narrative and separates us out from her function as the protagonist in the overall story. So obviously she does a lot as the protagonist. When you're taking that point of view, you don't see main character, you see protagonist, antagonist, all that stuff. You know, so when you take that overall view, you see her inside, you see her doing a lot of stuff because that's what protagonists do, particularly in activity stories. They do a lot of things from that perspective. But from the perspective of the main character, from the perspective of I, it's not the doing that's causing her problems, but instead the being. So it's a very interesting trend this week. It seems like uh, everything's coming together around this idea of perspective. And if you're new to Dramatica, which you know a lot of people will be, especially since this is uh, part two of an introductory podcast, when you think of the four through lines, the overall story through line, relationship story through line, main character through line, and influence character through line, it can be more accurate to think of them as perspectives or points of view on conflict rather than assigning them to the specific character. And that makes it easier too when you have a handoff situation in something like A Christmas Carol where the influence character is handed off uh, between the different ghosts. They all have the same perspective but they're different characters. So I'll leave links in the show notes to that main character post on perspective and also the Jane Eyre through line Thursdays. And again, if you've been with us for the last year or even longer, thank you so much for your support and any sort of championing you do for uh, Dramatica and of course Narrative First. We really, really appreciate it and love when you spread the word and other people can hear about the theory and how it can help them write better stories. left off in part one of Discovering Dramatic and the Genesis of Narrative first, we'll be focusing more on the heartbeat of the site, which I consider to be the articles. As I mentioned before, in 2010, that's when I started writing every week. Every week I sat down, Tuesdays I would sit down and draft the article, Wednesday I would rewrite it, and Thursday I would publish it. And I did that pretty much from March 1 through Thanksgiving, and ended up with 40 articles, and I just love the pacing of it, the timing of it. It was great to be able to put it into a book at the end of the year, and it just provided a great um, a consistency of content, and also challenged me to continue to come up with new and different ways of explaining the theory. And like I said, my most, my most important purpose, or I guess my most important rule, is to always keep it fresh so that it's not just rehashing the same thing over and over again. Even like in the last in the last segment where I was talking about the ghosts and the handoff, it's like I got to come up with a different one than the ghosts because I use that one all the time. And I think yesterday I was talking about Forrest Gump where it's between Lieutenant Dan and Jenai. Jenai! Sights Tyke and Jenai! Uh, which I think is accurate. It might be two different story forms, but I'm pretty sure they both have the same perspective. See? Did the same perspective there. Uh, I just need to come up with more and more 
different uh, examples of it. Otherwise, it just seems like, wow, you found the one film where that works out or the one story where that works out, and you just keep saying the same thing over and over again. This sounds like, you know, something like The Hero's Journey or something where they keep referencing Star Wars over and over again or The Matrix. It's like, all right, we get it. We get it. Move on. So, yeah, I'm always trying to find new and more exciting material, and that's what the articles challenge me to do. Trust me, they're not easy. They take a lot of work. But in the end, I love it because, uh, one, it offers people an opportunity to learn Dramatica um, on their own, to be able to sit down and read and do it at their own pace. And two, of course, it uh, expands my knowledge and my ability to teach people and to like, you know, help them. So when I sat down, I was going to do the top ten articles of the last seven years, which I can't believe I've been doing this for seven years now. Uh, and I ended up with 20, which seemed like real overkill, so I pared it down and I picked 16. And if you're a dramatic fan, you know why I picked 16. If not, eventually you'll understand. Uh, the first one, of course, is uh, writing complete stories, which is uh, bridging the gap between the vault and these articles. Uh, all these articles will be found at narrativefirst.com slash articles or in the archive section. Uh, and the one, you know, December 2009, uh, January 2010, the writing complete stories, which I spoke about a lot in the last podcast. That one uh, lays out the four through lines and lays out why they're important. And of course, uh, at the time I was at DreamWorks, so I wanted to say, hey, everybody, look, this is why... Pixar films are so great is because they always have all four through lines and a lot of times we don't have all four through lines or our four through lines are all mixed up our perspectives are constantly changing uh, and that's where the impetus or the motivation for that came from the second what I consider to be the most most important article is not everything is a hero's journey now uh, I have a huge issue with the hero's journey I've always not liked it I remember my dad, when I was getting into story, he gave me all the Joseph Campbell books because he thought they were amazing. Um, and I would start to read through them, and then about five pages in, my eyes would gloss over, and I would get super bored, and then I would go back to playing video games or doing something else, drawing. There's just something about the mythology and looking for trends in stories that had absolutely zero appeal to me whatsoever, or cultural trends in stories just was not something I was remotely interested in. And then, of course, once I saw The Matrix and found out they were really into a hero's journey, I thought, all right, I'll try again. And I got the PBS documentary, all those videos, watched those, and just was bored out of my mind. I thought, oh, here's George Lucas. He's going to explain why Star Wars is so great. And then, of course, later on, we figured out that really it was pure happenstance that it all worked out so great uh, and had nothing to do with hero's journey. Uh so I've always had an issue with it. I know some people really love it. Uh, the Cal Bashir 5,083 different steps of the hero's journey obviously has some audience somewhere. And it's funny that somebody who thinks there are at least 75 story points in every narrative finds 5,082 too much. Some people would think 75 is too much. Uh, I just find it a little overkill. And so my first post where I was finally able to get that all out was called Not Everything is a Hero's Journey. And it begins, There is a sickness running through the world, a sickness that attempts to twist every instance of narrative fiction through the siphon of errors that is the hero's journey story structure paradigm. Uh, it might have been right after uh, Chris Vogler had come to DreamWorks to talk about the hero's journey. And it was a really odd um, sort of meeting. Because I, I, being somebody that's totally into narrative and story, I wanted lots and lots of examples and lots of material to it. And there really wasn't 
much substance to it. Over the years, I can't tell you how many emails I've received from writers who have always felt the same exact way and were so happy to have read this article and to actually, you know, have somebody say, hey, you know what, this isn't always the case. It doesn't always have to be like this. And it represents one case that works great um, and is, is nice the way that it's presented, but you don't always have to do it that way. And so I, I feel like that is one of the seminal articles if you're just getting started and you're just coming to narrative first. You want to check that one out. And of course, I'm going to say this one time, and so I don't have to say it over and over again, I will be leaving links to all of these in the show notes. The week right after I did one, because I was on a roll, called The Difference Between Neo and Luke Skywalker. Because it continues this whole idea of the hero's journey, and how everybody said, well, you know, everything's the hero's journey. Star Wars is the hero's journey, Matrix is the hero's journey. And while, again, superficially, you can see certain segments and a progression of segments that somehow apply to this idea of somebody becoming whole or whatever the, the notion is in the hero's journey. But there is a significant difference between the sort of conflict that uh, Mr. Anderson or Neo deals with and the kind of conflict that Luke Skywalker deals with. And I feel like that's the, that's the important part. That's the part that writers actually care about. Not this superficial after-the-fact or mythical cultural trend that they're sensing, but rather this idea that, hey, there's actually some elements in there that are very, very different between these two characters and makes the stories actually significantly different. Uh, you know, Neo is dealing with a problem of disbelief, like he doesn't believe in himself. And Luke ha has no issue with believing in himself. He totally believes in himself. His issue is that he's always, like, testing himself out. Like, hey, come on, let's go check this out. Let's go see what's up there. And, you know, hey, I can fly this thing all by myself. Like, that's his problem, is the problem of tests. And Neo's problem is a problem of disbelief. So those are fundamentally different stories. I mean, Dramatica actually sees a significant difference between somebody driven by disbelief and somebody driven by test. And you can read the definitions. That'll definitely help you understand the difference there. But I feel like this article and the one before it are great for people who are coming from a set paradigm structure to see like okay this is what dramatic is all about it it actually it's not saying paint by numbers which is maybe perhaps what i felt with these other paradigms or felt kind of constricted or not even constricted but kind of lost as to what to do with all these different sequences and instead here's the actual meat the actual essence of the story of what's actually going on wrong in the story and how how it can be played out th through the different acts and part of that is understanding the main character's problem like what's actually driving them and understanding the difference here between disbelief and test goes a long way to understanding that and at the time i also started a series of character arc videos which i think are great and i wish i had more time to be able to do them for all the different elements and all kinds of different characters uh, and the first two were luke skywalker and neo just to show this difference you know what drove them uh, to create all the problems in their lives and then how they were able to actually overcome it by taking the opposite, the solution. And so the link to those uh, character arc videos will be in the show notes as well. Another fun one, which I guess this is my anti-George Lucas articles that started out, was the MacGuffin is a joke. Uh, every time I ever hear anybody use the word MacGuffin in a story meeting or any kind of storytelling situation, I know they have no idea what they're talking about. And it's something they learned in film school, and, and they're being lazy. It's kind of like, all right, well, I'm just going to get the story started. It's just the MacGuffin. I haven't really figured it out, but it's the thing that starts the story. It's the thing that starts the story off, but it doesn't really mean anything. And that's ridiculous. Uh, it's a complete, nonsensical... It, it, 
it tells of somebody who doesn't actually understand the true narrative of what's going on in a story. Uh, you know, and if, if George Lucas is the, the bellwether of uh, the MacGuffin, you know, like he thinks like the droids with making off with the, the plans, the MacGuffin or whatever it was that he felt. If George Lucas is the epitome of using the MacGuffin, it's probably something you don't want to do. You know, if he describes R2-D2 as the main driving force of the movie, what you say in the movie business is the MacGuffin, the object of everybody's search, you know you're on the wrong path. <laughs> you should not listen to anybody who thinks the MacGuffin is an actual thing. This is one of those articles that's really fun for me to write because not only do I get to expand on what it is that I've always felt was kind of false in film school or stuff that I had learned or been taught that just seemed a hair off, but I actually have a concrete uh, explanation for what's really going on, you know, from an objective overall standpoint and knowing, you know, the, the true overall story conflict of Star Wars, which involves the droids taking the plans and that they're an integral part of the overall story through line, and that whole perspective, it all works together into one seamless narrative. I feel like that is more important than just throwing something out there like, ah, it's just the MacGuffin, I'm, I'm not sure where it's coming from. points and the inciting incident. This is by far the most popular article on the entire site. Plot points and the inciting incident because I assume people are just keen into Google plot points inciting incident and this is the first one that comes up. I mean this is by a magnitude of 10 or 15 times. This one garnishes the most clicks out of anyone any other article on the entire site and it again uh, coming off of the Star Wars discussion, you know, many people look to Luke receiving the message, uh, you know, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope, as the inciting incident of Star Wars. That may be, it depends on what your definition of inciting incident is. Uh, most people consider the inciting incident when the story starts. Okay, the story doesn't start when Luke receives the message. All four through lines, all those four perspectives, kick into place when he receives the message. But the story actually starts when Darth boards the ship, and that is what Dramatic refers to as a story driver. So this article is all about defining that first act, like the, the first story driver that starts the overall story through line perspective, and then the second story driver, which is the uh, first act turn, what turns you know the, the first act into the next act, uh, which generally happens about a quarter of the way through a story, depending on what kind of story you're telling. But, you know, something big will happen in the beginning or some huge decision will be made. A bunch of stuff will happen, a bunch of conflict. It'll all kind of die out, and then it'll return to some giant action or decision, and that's that first act turn. And so I went through a bunch of different films, Again, not just relying on Star Wars, although I start with that as a way to, you know, bridge the gap between what everybody is used to. So I start out with Star Wars, of course, The Matrix, just to show the differences there. Unforgiven, that's a fun one to do. The Sixth Sense, uh, Casablanca, The Lives of Others, which is a tremendous uh, German foreign film, and The Incredibles, because it's always good to get some animation in there. Oh, and of course, I also did Hamlet, because it's not just about movies, it's about stories. 
And stories are stories no matter how big or how small. And so that article, that's a great one if you're struggling with the story driver or you're struggling with the first act of your story. That's a great one to look over. Another companion article to that one is the reason for acts. Uh, it, it expands on the idea of you know, why there are actually acts in a story. And I go through, um, let's see, I go through Star Wars and, of course, Unforgiven and basically discuss why those acts actually happen in a story. That it's not just because something happens, it's because the author has exhausted all that he can about looking at conflict from a certain point of view, and now it's time to try something else. And then that's why you have different acts, because you're basically just looking at conflict through different contexts. And then the only reason you have, you know, four acts in a story is because it's like, all right, well, now I've done everything I possibly can to look at this kind of conflict. Now what's the solution? Are we going to actually employ the solution? And that's why you don't have more than four. In a single narrative, obviously, if you're going to create multiple narratives, you'll have more acts than that. So those two work together. Plot point in the inciting incident and the reason for acts. Another favorite of mine, which is kind of the basis of Dramatica, where it all comes from, you know, this inequity that is at the center of every story, is how an inequity and a story is made. Uh, and it's based on this um, series of slides that Chris used to do during a workshop where he would show how the inequity, how a character hides, or a character, a person, hides away an inequity in their mind, or hides, you know, justifies away a problem. And, you know, it's, you start out with, you know, something that you want, and that, that thing that's on the other side, and select one as the given, and then you lock it away, and then you kind of, through these levels of justification, it buries that problem away, so that the character comes to a story not really aware of what it is their problem is. So, you know, Neo or uh, Luke, Neo doesn't know that disbelief is a problem for him, and Luke doesn't know that test is a problem for him because he's buried it away. And the way that it's buried away in the backstory is this process of justification, which is basically the, this, the foundation of Dramatica, this problem-solving and justification process. And so I wrote this article to kind of make it easier for people to understand how an inequity and a story is made. So if you're interested in how that process of justification happens, you'll want to read that article. And then another article that's a great visualization of uh, how, how Dramatica works and how it fits between author and audience is The Veil Between Author and Audience. And this is a great one because uh, Chris started describing or visualizing the story form as this thin sheet of, this thin veil that's between, you know, the author's on one side and the audience is on the other side. And the, the story form itself are these little holes. You can poke little holes where both can see each other from the other side. And there's a way to communicate, to, to, to get between those two perspectives, or to communicate a message across. And those story points, those 75 story points of a story form, are those actual little holes within that veil. Uh, and I just thought that was a, such a great... I was so excited by this visualization of it or th this concept that I, I knocked out an entire article about it. I'm really proud of it. Uh, it might be a little too complex if you're new to it, but if you can take the time to to read it and actually kind of understand what it is that's going on uh, with where Dramatica sits between the writing process, you know, you're writing a story, where it sits in that whole process of from my imagination to somebody else's imagination. Uh, you know, when you're communicating, you're using telepathy to transmit the images in your mind to somebody else's mind, where Dramatica sits, this article is a great way to visualize that whole process. Now these next three articles are articles that I really enjoy writing because I get to basically write about how much I love Dramatica. Uh, there's three of them. I couldn't pick which one that I thought was the best. Uh, what you're missing by not understanding Dramatica, the real magic behind great stories, and the magic of the story form. 
And all of those are speaking about Dramatica and the difference between um, the way Dramatica looks at narrative and the way that pretty much every other seasoned paradigm or structural guru or whatever screenwriting book you've read, how they see uh, narrative. It goes through and help defines why I think Dramatica is so important and why it does such a wonderful job of describing all the various aspects of great narrative. You know, what you're missing by not understanding Dramatica answers all the questions about, well, Dramatica is too complicated. It looks like the same old paradigm. I don't know anyone who uses Dramatica. That's always the first question. Do you have any proof of anybody who actually uses Dramatica? Like, why does it matter if it if it works? It does, doesn't matter if there's any proof. Dramatica's vocabulary frustrates me. Now I don't know what to think. It's, it goes through all the different sort of things that most people encounter when they first come to Dramatica. And those three are great. So it's just a great opportunity for me to proselytize the wonders and magic uh, behind Dramatica and its idea of the story form. Another popular screenwriting paradigm or storytelling paradigm was Save the Cat. And I worked on the film How to Train Your Dragon. When Dean, uh, one of the directors, got up to pitch the story for us, he essentially ran through the Save the Cat sequences. He had 15 or 16 different boards up there that he put up on the projector and pitched the whole idea out. And if you look at one of Blake's later books, you can actually see Dean and one of the photos in there because he was part of the New York Writers Group. And so Dean was a huge fan of Save the Cat, and obviously the first film is tremendous. I think the second one was going to be tremendous until too many hands got into it, and I think kind of botched it up, and now it has a really odd message to it. That Save the Cat paradigm is very popular because the book is really fun to read. It's really simple to read. It's got a lot of great examples in it, and it's very approachable. Uh, but again, just like Hero's Journey, it only describes a small sliver of story. I believe, you know, his B story, which essentially is the relationship story through line. He has happening after the first act, and part of Dramatica's rules, if there are any rules, is that those perspectives, you have to have all those four perspectives, all four through lines, set in place before that second story driver, before you move into the next act. Otherwise, you haven't, you know, you haven't looked at things from all four sides. You haven't looked at the argument from all four sides, and you essentially have a whole. So really, I mean, Blake might be seeing that uh, the B story, quote-unquote, happens or begins in the second act, but really there's elements of it or parts of it that happen far earlier. And so one of my favorite articles to write, which is an essential one to write, especially if you're a Save the Cat fan, is Forget the Cat, Save Yourself, where I go through and explain what it is about the Save the Cat paradigm that is deficient when it comes to accurately describing the totality of narrative. And it's funny because I start this one off the same way that I started off, not everything is a hero's journey. There is a new sickness running through the screenwriting world, a sickness that attempts to twist every instance of narrative fiction through the reductive filter that is the save the cat story structure paradigm. And I go through about the 15 beats, how sequence matters, because I know in the second book he changes sequences around and says, well, it doesn't matter the order of things. And of course, Dramatica is very much concerned with the order of things and that determines whether or not a story is a tragedy or a triumph, and all kinds of different things. So if you're a, a fan of the Save the Cat methodology, you'll want to make sure that you check out Forget the Cat and Save Yourself. Distrust the Process, which was, uh, at the time, was kind of scary for me to write because I was still at DreamWorks, and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is the CEO there at DreamWorks Animation, was very much a fan of trust the process. In other words, well, if the story's not there, trust the process, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out, don't be scared, keep trusting the process, keep trusting the process. And unfortunately, there's many of us on the other side who had to deal with all the results of that trust the process, uh, which involved 
many late nights, seven day weeks, uh, cleaning up the mess that was the lack of a story uh, within the last three months of the production of a film. And so my new trademark saying that I want to uh, copyright or trademark is distrust the process because I'm very familiar with the uh, results of what happens when you just kind of wing it and hope that it all works out in the end. And of course, that's the basis for Narrative First. That's where the name of the company came from. It's like, well, try and get the, get the narrative. Don't try. Get the narrative right first. You know, Find out what it is your intent is, your purpose, and then keep bouncing back into that when you have uh, issues with anything else. You know, That story form will always keep you honest and always keep you level-headed and, and focused on what it is that you're trying to get across because there's an actual intent. There's an actual author's purpose there. So yes, from now on, everybody should be saying distrust the process, not trust the process. Another one that I'd like to fight against the manner of thinking is this idea of the two-hander. Uh, I used to listen to the Script Notes podcast a lot until it became less about useful things for writing and more about useful things for being a screenwriter. They would always talk about the two-hander, about how it's like, oh, well, it's a two-hander. There's two protagonists, you know, that kind of thing. And really what they're seeing is the main character and influence character, but they're not really figuring out, you know, who's, who's coming from the I perspective and who's coming from the you perspective. So I, I knocked out this article, The Fallacy of the Two-Hander, to be able to hand off to anybody who, you know, comes with that notion like, well, I'm writing a two-hander. And it's just like the MacGuffin, <laughs> just like anytime I hear two-hander or I hear MacGuffin, it's like, oh, okay, well, let me explain to you what's really going on in a story. Uh, so if you have a chance and you actually believe you have a two-hander, or you've heard that before, uh, and you want to know what's actually really going on in the story, you'll want to read that article. And then finally, my wrap-up of, you know, I guess going against manners of thinking that I don't particularly agree with, and this one's very touchy because uh, this manner of thinking I don't agree with actually comes from one of Dramatica's co-creators, Melanie Ann Phillips. And this would be what I would consider the James Bond controversy, which I believe I spoke about last week and keeps coming up, this idea of James Bond, the antagonist, which Melanie uh, is a big fan of, Chris isn't so much a fan of, and I'm definitely dead set against because I run into writers all the time who gets all confused, and then I have to continually defend myself. So my article, The Tragedy of James Bond, the Antagonist, addresses this whole notion of seeing him as the one who's preventing, as if, you know, the bad guy is pursuing something bad and the good guy is trying to prevent something bad from it. It's just, it confuses everything. So, very definitely, uh, if you want to see uh, my articles that challenge manners of thinking uh, in story structure and story paradigms uh, from a Dramatica point of view, of course, not everything is a hero's journey, forget the cat, save yourself, and, of course, the tragedy of James Bond, the antagonist. <laughs> this last section, these are actually, um, I guess, uh, new developments, things that uh, I'm particularly proud of that help expand the theory, make it more than it is, and uh, hopefully introduce more and more people to this idea 
this exciting idea of a narrative, you know, essentially being an analogy to a single human mind trying to solve a problem. Quite simply, the Shawshank analysis, which was the very first um, user group meeting that was recorded video and broadcast live through Google Hangouts and was hosted by me. It was the first one, I think uh, Chris was out of town or something, and he asked me to fill in, and I was more than excited because that was the, the film that I had figured out the story form for, which was an essential part of me becoming a dramatic story expert, and I was more than happy to you know be the host for it and to kick off the whole video series on YouTube of the dramatic user groups, which we do now. We don't do the Google Hangouts anymore, just technically it became quite a challenge just to hook it all up. Eventually we'll probably get back to it, but for now... Uh, now they're recorded in glorious 1080p. They look amazing. That was the other thing, too. I wanted better quality as opposed to kind of the, the quality that I was getting from the Google Hangouts in my white laptop MacBook from 2008. Uh, so they look better now. They don't have the participation as much, uh, but hopefully, you know, the message uh, is clear and getting across. So the Shawshank analysis, that one I'm particularly proud of, especially because it's an opportunity to show you know, that difference again between the main character and the protagonist because everybody automatically assumes Andy, the Tim Robbins character, is the main character. And uh, in that narrative, Red, the Morgan Freeman character, is the main character. Off of the Shawshank analysis, uh, there is the, uh, the main character playground exercises, which I came up with playgrounds before Apple came in and stole my idea and used it to do Swift playgrounds as a place to play uh, and explore, you know, different alternatives. So the main character playground was something that I came up with based on uh, a suggestion Chris had about spinning uh, the model, you know, keeping the the same exact story form but using the gist that come with Dramatica Story Expert and spinning something completely different so that the, the essence or the structure of the story is the same for the main character, you know, that what they're dealing with internally, you know, those elements like uh, disbelief or test for Neo or Luke, but that the actual storytelling is completely different. Like, there's a million different ways to explain disbelief, and there's a million different ways to expose test, um, but, you know, at the base structure of it, they'll be the same. So the idea is that you create all these playgrounds, you know, you just take a couple hours just to go through maybe three, three to five times, and you just basically brainstorm different scenarios, different characters, and completely different genres that have the same thematic material that your character has. And you end up coming up with all kinds of great ideas that you never had before that you can then apply back to your story. And that, to me, that's an exciting part about Dramatica because a lot of people say, well, it's just an analysis tool. And really, no, it's a, it can be a great creativity tool and a great brainstorming tool that doesn't lock you in but actually expands what it is you're trying to propose, what you're trying to say with your story. It expands it and makes it more believable and more full and more compelling and so the main character playground there's a series of articles but that's the first one uh you know it's the basis for the dramatic mentorship program and it, it has worked amazingly with everybody that i've worked with because you know you do it just for the main character but then you do it for the influence character and even the influence character is a completely different point of view uh, it's just a fantastic way to remove the author from what it is they hold dear you know their precious idea and to get them thinking about story as this thing that uh, moves and turns on its own, regardless of the actual subject matter or the actual storytelling. And then lastly, the article that I'm really, really uh, proud of and really excited about, especially in light of the last couple weeks, the work that I've been doing with other clients, other writers, is writing a perfectly structured scene with Dramatica. And here I went through and actually uh, detailed out the four modalities of scene construction, uh, where I took a, a post that Melanie had 
written and then some other things that uh, Chris and Melanie had written together and kind of figured out, well, what would be the essence of the scene structure? What would be a scene structure for a Dramatica point of view? And it had all different modalities, um, PRCO, which is potential resistance, current outcome, and then it had the material of the scene, which is thought, knowledge, ability, and desire, and then it had the actual, the timing of when those things happened, the setup, revelation, conflict, and aftermath, and then it had another one which is all about the illustration, you know, if it's an active or passive scene, structural or storytelling, and you put all those together, and you can actually, you know, really get down to the nitty-gritty of scene construction, and it's great because recently I've been using that because, you know, through the Dramatic Mentorship Program, you develop your story, and then we get it to a really, really great place, but then everybody's kind of stuck with like, well, then now where do I take it? And I've actually lately worked with people to figure out their actual scenes and figure out where they fall flat. And a lot of them fall flat because the, the beats within a story will all be activity or there will all be manipulation. And, you know, they need to be manipulation, fixed attitude, physics, uh, activities or situation. Otherwise, it just there's no conflict there. There's no dynamic tension between the actual beats themselves. And this, of course, goes to the whole fractal nature of dramatic, where everything that's at the top is at the bottom. It's crazy. It's great. It's really exciting. And I'm in the we're in the process now of developing a tool to kind of bridge that gap between, uh, you know, all of the dramatic theory and then actually getting that story out and in a presentable form. So you can submit your treatment to your agent or you can actually submit the screenplay. There's actually a great way to think about it and to, to organize everything so that you can quickly and easily see what it is. All that work that you do, uh, through Dramatica, it doesn't just get lost when it comes to writing. It's not like you just put it aside. You can actually categorize it and organize it in a way that it, it can come back to you and you can remember it and recall it and use it in such a way that you can make your stories as vibrant and as full as you imagine them when you're going through the development process. And so that, that article, Writing a Perfectly Structured Scene with Dramatica, until that tool's completed, which will be a little while, it takes a little while to develop something like that, uh, as we're doing that, you'll you know if you can't wait, that's a great article to start at and to read and to actually understand the concepts because putting them into practice is much different than actually understanding them. If you have any questions about any of these articles, obviously there's hundreds of articles that are there for you to read. If we got seven years of articles and blog posts now and all kinds of things. If you have any questions, you know of course contact us and we'll do our best to answer you. Our goal here is to make better stories. That's what we want. We love great stories. We love encountering them. Uh, you know, as miserable as Manchester by the Sea was, watching that was tremendously entertaining. Um, Arrival was another example of something that was tremendously entertaining. It had a great story. And just understanding, you know, I, I got a, a tweet from somebody who, who's not even a writer but, but loves reading the articles on analysis just because it, they're interesting. And that's, of course, because everybody has an intuitive sense of what makes a narrative work. I mean, if, if narrative truly is an analogy to a single human mind trying to solve a problem, and we all have single human minds, and we've all solved problems, then obviously everybody has an intuitive understanding of when a story works and when it doesn't work. And the great thing about Dramatica and the work we do here at Narrative First is we explain why that is and where that intuition comes from and how you can booster up that intuition and develop that story sense to a place where you can instantly figure out where those holes are and fill them up and write that complete and great story that you've always dreamed of. 
So that's it for the part two of the Narrative First podcast of Discovering Dramatica and the Genesis of Narrative First. Next week, we'll return back to the Generating Dramatic Tension. almost wanted to say Generating Dramatic Attention. Generating Dramatic Tension uh, by looking at the story form from a subjective point of view. We'll go into the four-act structure. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please contact us at narrativefirst.com contact. Have a great week of writing, and we will see you next time.